Hey, deserving listeners, I'm going to answer a bunch of your questions in today's episode. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Our social social media ambassador, Colin, he compiled a bunch of questions from you. And so here we go. First questions are from Upper Tier Patron Nardine. They ask, what is the distinction between therapy and supervision? What is the distinction between providing therapy or providing supervision? So I'm guessing what Nardine is asking is, in supervision, is there any kind of therapy that happens? And uh, I would say absolutely, yes. So when I'm talking with my clients, I think we can all imagine what that relationship looks like. And when I'm talking with my supervisees, it's it's pretty complex because on one hand, I have – so I actually wrote a whole book on all the different roles involved in supervision. And it's a – you can buy it on Amazon. It's called multi-role clinical, Multi-Role Clinical Supervision in which I describe all the evidence-based 19 roles that need to be prov- uh, provided in supervision. So we have public safeguarding roles. These are roles that are involved in making sure that the – therapist that you're supervising doesn't harm the public, making sure that you uphold ethics, this sort of thing. And then you have skill building roles, and these are the various roles involved in teaching the the novice clinician how to be a, a good skillful therapist. Then we have guiding roles, and these are roles, uh, various different roles here, but one of the roles is self-awareness guide. So it's important, and evidence shows, that good supervision involves helping the supervisee to be more self-aware. And so uh, that kind of looks like therapy sometimes, where I, as a supervisor, might ask a supervisee, well, what's going on there with your counter-transference? Or does that connect to what I know about what's going on in your personal life? And so that can, from the outside, kind of look like therapy. It's not therapy. It's absolutely supervision. It's important supervision. But it can look like therapy, sort of. The other roles that are all involved in therapy as well is what I call the relationship roles. And these are the six roles of alliance facilitator. So the role of alliance facilitator of a supervisor is evidence-based in that when a supervisor engineers a strong alliance between supervisor and supervisee, there are better outcomes, meaning that the supervisee thinks supervision is is good and that the client benefits from the supervision. And so the alliance is important. And the alliance is the bond that you feel with between the supervisor and supervisee. Also, you have an agreement on the goals of supervision and the tasks involved in meeting those goals. And we also call in therapy relationship the same thing. You need to have an alliance between client and therapist where you have a bond and you agree on the goals and you agree on the tasks. So the other role that's also important in both supervision and therapy is attachment figure. In order for a client to do well in therapy, they have to feel securely attached to their therapist. The same is true about supervision. If a supervisee is going to thrive within supervision, they need to feel securely attached to their supervisor, and a lot of supervisor, supervisors neglect this, 
as saying, well, you know, I'm not their therapist. And I'm like, yeah, you're not their therapist, but you are their supervisor. And evidence shows that a secure attachment in supervision increases the quality of the supervision and the likelihood of clients benefiting from the supervision you're providing. So you need to be paying attention to how safe a a supervisee feels, not only just in your office, but also just in how attuned you are to their feelings. The other role is listener. Listening is an evidence-based approach to supervision in which the supervisor carefully listens, listens very well, takes the time to really understand, and of course, therapists do that for clients as well. Supporter is another role. We provide a supervisor support for our supervisees. We uh, build them up. We try to help them feel better, this sort of thing. And of course, therapists do that with clients. Advocate is another role. And this is actually not necessarily what a therapist would do for their clients, but a supervisor needs to do this, and it's related to the relationship in that when a supervisee is being um, trodden, trodden, tread upon, tr- tr- stepped on by someone else, I, as a supervisor, will step in and advocate and fight for that supervisee. Some of the best supervision I've ever received, and I've received very rare uh, good supervision in my estimation, in my uh, measurement, Uh, out of all the 17 supervisors I've had, I've only had a few that were good, really. And of those supervisors that were good, they advocated for me. When I was being treated unfairly by other people, which strangely happens a lot in my field, by other colleagues, these supervisors fought for me hard. I can think of two supervisors who really, really went above and beyond to fight for me. And that's important, not only to feel safe with your supervisor, but also it's just fair and it's socially just. When you have a novice clinician who doesn't have any power, supervisors need to protect that person from mistreatment. And the last relationship role is mentor. In order for good supervision to take place, evidence shows that mentorship is important, meaning that you show the way forward. You say, okay, yeah, I was, I had imposter syndrome when I was at your stage, or let me help you with your career, this kind of thing. And so there are 19 roles, and I've just laid out uh, seven of the roles that, seven of the 19 roles that I laid out in my book, Multi-Role Clinical Supervision, are roles that you could say are at least in part, if not completely a part of what the role of a therapist is for a client. And so in this way, uh, Nardine, the distinction between therapy and supervision is that sometimes supervision can look like therapy. You know, I'll be sitting with a supervisee, maybe for an entire meeting, entire hour, and they're crying about something they went through as a child or something they're going through right now. And I'm listening and I'm caring and I'm, I might be talking to, to them very similarly as I would be talking to a client in that I'm caring, I'm listening, I am trying to provide some interpretations, maybe some help, maybe some corrective experiences for them. And that's important. That's an, an evidence-based important part of good supervision. But it's different from therapy in that I do not have a treatment plan for mental conditions for them. I don't diagnose my supervisees. I don't have a an overall idea of what 
mentally they need, you know, what I'm trying to help them get to in terms of their life. I'm more interested in serving their work as and their development as a clinician and in their clients. I'm, I'm concerned about how is this person developing as a clinician and how is this clinician serving their clients well or not. That's what I'm focusing on. So when I'm listening to a supervisee grieve something for an entire hour, I'm not thinking necessarily oh, I'm doing this because I'm, I'm working on depression or I'm working on complex PTSD. What I'm doing is I'm focusing on listening to them grieve and helping them grieve as a way of thinking, well, they're going to be a better clinician this, this week because of this. And they might learn a thing or two about what it's like to go through grief conversation with a clinician. And if they resolve some of these issues, their countertransference will be less triggered and, and problematic with their clients. And if they're relaxed and they feel supported, they'll have more energy for their clients. And so that's the difference between therapy and supervision. Although from the outside and even from the inside, it might feel very similar. You know, I've had supervisees who will even tell me, they'll say, you know, talking to you is better than talking to my therapist sometimes because uh, of one reason or another. Or my therapist isn't very good with talking about this sort of thing. You know, can I talk with you about this sort of thing? And uh, so it can very much feel and seem like therapy, but it's but it's not. And there isn't a, some people will just pull this random thing out of their butt and say like, well, if if supervisors provide therapy for their supervisees, that's unethical. And technically, yes, that's true. If it is termed or thought of as therapy, I, as a supervisor, cannot provide and don't want to provide therapy for my supervisees. But to some people will just say, talking about your problems, your own personal problems with your supervisor is an unethical boundary violation. And that's just not true. Not only is it um, just not unethical because you'd have a hard time uh, having a good case for an ethical violation, but it's also in all the literature, in all the evidence, and all the research, uh, it points toward a strong relationship between supervisor and supervisee, a good listener, a good supporter, a good attachment figure. These are important things in 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 helping uh, clinicians become better clinicians, as the evidence shows, and in improving their clients' outcomes. So if listening to your supervisee talk for an hour about the divorce that they're going through right now or the chronic pain that they're going through right now or the stress with their neighbors they're going through right now, if that is going to get them back on their feet so that they feel like they have the energy to take on a full load of clients, then that's what you do. And to ignore that is to be a non-evidence-based supervisor and, frankly, to be inhuman. <laughs> I mean, imagine uh, if you were, say, you're a McDonald's cashier and you go to your supervisor at, at work, you're, you know, the manager of the McDonald's, and you're just like, oh, I'm just having this really bad day. And the manager takes a half an hour to talk with you about how things are going, and they're a human being, and they listen, and they, they might even cry with you or something. And the cashier says, wow, you know, I feel better now. Thanks. Thank you, manager, for listening and, 
you know, you're older, you kind of been there, done that. Now I can go back to working and I can actually go home and feel a little bit better about myself. Like that's essentially what we're talking about for a supervisor, not to do that for their supervisee would be to, to avoid, to like, you know, avoid some spurious argument about, uh, you know, ethical violations would, would just be wrong. Now, does every supervisor relationship have to involve these kinds of deep conversations? No, I, I have, I've had plenty of supervisees who just want to talk with me about clinical things and they have their therapist or their people that they go to and they don't need to come to me for that. But Every supervisor should spend time assessing whether or not a supervisee needs to be talking about that. All right, let's go on to another question. Upper tier patron Nardine goes on to ask, what issues of, prof- of professional ethics do you find most concerning? Most concerning professional ethics. Well, off the top of my head, sex with clients comes to mind. Strangely, it's still happening and not okay. I, people email me. I read reports, and it's just utterly bizarre. I just cannot imagine the road of terribleness that someone has to go down before that happens. There's so many stops in one's behavior that would prevent someone from having sex with a client. So many like notions that are should be going on in your head as a clinician. I'm just like, I don't know if this is a good idea that I flirt. I don't know if I this is a good idea that we text outside of, you know, business hours. I don't know if I should really be joking around like this with my, you know, and that's just the beginning, right? And then you start going down into telling each other you love each other and all these things. It just, I just find it to be bizarre and it almost never goes well. I mean, one could say it, it, it arguably never goes well. Although, you know, I hear reports of cases where, you know, one out of a thousand cases, it manages to not harm both people involved, particularly the clients, but it usually does harm everyone. It's just like bizarre. So yeah, I'm pretty concerned about that. Uh, It's just bizarre that it's still happening, honestly. Another is defining who the client is. You remember me going off, I don't know, one or two weeks ago in an episode about, about all that. Just listen to that. Another issue is scope. So knowing what you're capable of doing as a clinician. Uh, There are a lot of clinicians that will just write a report that a client wants to be written, or they'll write a letter for for court. Like uh, a client will say, I want you to testify that I'm a good parent and that my ex-husband is a bad parent, even though the therapist has never even met with the ex-husband. Therapists will just write that report. And they don't have, and they're so stupid that they have no idea that they don't have the qualifications or the ability to write a report like that. And it's literally in our ethical codes that you're not supposed to do stuff like that very specifically. And yeah, it's just utterly mind blowing. And a lot of times it doesn't even get punished. You know, the, the courts don't notice, the lawyers don't notice, but everyone just lets it happen, but occasionally it does get caught and people get burnt. Another is not knowing your duty to protect, not knowing how to, uh, what your duties are as a therapist. And I used to be this way too. When I first started out, I don't know if it was my training or just the way I think, but I, when I had clients in my early career who were suicidal or homicidal or 
at risk of hurting themselves for one reason or another. I was always of the attitude just like, well, you know, it's not my business if if clients, you know, are going to do stuff like that. Who am I to get into, you know, to sort of invade their life? If they want my help with it, I'm going to help with it, but I'm not going to force them to do anything. Well, over 25 years of being a therapist and 20 years of being a, a supervisor, I've come to learn uh, through examples that we can't get away as clinicians with just uh, acting that way. We have to actually do things, and depending on the jurisdiction you're in. But in Washington State, we have a pretty high standard of a duty to protect, which means we have to do a lot when someone is even just minorly at risk of suicide or homicide. And the, the, the process is pretty easy. Once you learn how to do it, and once you have a system, then you just go through the steps. But a lot of therapists, they avoid it. They're scared of it. They don't want to do it. They freak out in the moment. And I get it. But I think part of it is that, and I've had this conversation with many, probably all my supervisees at some point run into this, honestly. And it's rare, but they all run into it at some point. And what I, what I find, and I, I don't think I've ever told, and I know some of my supervisees listen to this, so if, uh, this is something I thought about after going through some of these instances with you, by the way, supervisees listening right now, is that... Normally, as a therapist, we are in a mode of helping. We're in a mode of listening. We're in a, mo- we're in a mode of receiving. We're not in a mode of imposing something on someone else. We're in a mode of collaboration. We're in a mode of allowing clients to lead the way. And we are there you know, uh, by their side. It's sort of like they're wandering through the woods, and we're like space Jedi ghost, Obi-Wan Kenobi, just just floating nearby. And the the Luke Skywalkers of the world are, uh, you know, in the world and, and they're navigating and, and Obi-Wan Kenobi or Yoda can only just suggest things from the side. And, and that's usually the way that us therapists feel and approach. And we might be in that approach every hour of every workday we ever do for years. And all of a sudden this situation happens where suddenly now we cannot be a space ghost. We have to actually be the leader. We have to actually step, you know, manifest in reality and step in front of Luke Skywalker and say, this is now going to happen. I guess speaking in sort of Star Wars terms, you know, you're you're Yoda now and you actually cause lightning to happen or you're um, what what in Space Ghost in Episode Nine actually grabbed a lightsaber? Who was that? That was just a terrible, stupid moment. But anyway, my point is, is that um, oh, it was it is it Luke that grabbed a lightsaber? Anyway, point is, is that us as therapists, all of a sudden, on a on a dime, we have to decide. I am now going to become a controller of my own client. I have to dictate what we talk about how we talk about it. I might even have to commit them. I might have to call 911 on them. And that is a mode that as a therapist, we are not used to playing. But it's one that we have to evoke in certain situations. And a lot of therapists will resist it. They'll get to those moments, even as I'm supervising them, they'll just be like, but but my client doesn't want to go to the hospital. But my But my client says maybe they'll be okay. And I'll be like, that doesn't matter anymore. You have 
your client has told you enough data that's crossed the line where now you have to take action, even if your client doesn't want you to take action, to, to provide safety not only to your client but also to the public. And it's almost like a police officer mode or something. And it, therapists just aren't comfortable in that mode. And I get that, but they'll also reject it. They, they will say, I don't want that role. And I'll, and I'll be saying, but you have to have that role. That is, by becoming a therapist, not only did you adopt a, a profession that allows you to be, to be a space ghost that's walking alongside people and helping them, but you also signed up for a role in which you become essentially a police officer in that you are now going to be telling your clients what's happening. You're going to be saying, this is what you're going to do. And if you don't do, if you don't go to the hospital right now because your suicide risk is so high, I'm going to call 911 on you. And the, and the police officers are going to come to my office and they're going to handcuff you and bring you to the hospital. Now, of course, you don't deliver it that way to the, to the client, but it is essentially that. That's what you're telling them. So that's another thing that um, I, I've, I've, I've concerning... Uh, I have a lot of concern for supervisees and, and for novice clinicians around knowing their their duties along those lines. Also, uh, listening to randos online is another thing. A lot of people today, therapists, when they have a question regarding ethics, they will they'll go to Facebook, and there are a lot of Facebook groups where it's only therapists, or Reddit subreddits will have this sort of thing, and. The conversations that I see on those uh, message boards, on those groups, I am, I, and it's the blind leading the blind. And some of the most confident idiots are, are just saying things like, oh, well, that's unethical, or this is what you're supposed to do. And I'm just, I'm just astounded at the confidence, you know, the Dunning-Kruger going on and some of these people. And this is a big problem. And I'm glad that people are talking about it, but I wish people knew what they didn't know. And I wish people would say, you know what, maybe we should talk with an expert. You know, here's what I think is supposed to happen, but you know what, let's talk to, to an expert. And the, the problem with this among clinicians is that not a lot of clinicians know an expert. They, they don't have access to that person, or they don't want to pay for that service because they might be kind of struggling financially anyway. And those experts can be a lot of money per hour, you know. Uh, for example, I hire experts, and they're not cheap. Let's just put it that way. And so I think that it, it there's a barrier there. But you should at least have someone in mind of like, well, you know, I think this question I have as a clinician regarding ethics and the law, I don't think I should leave it to chance on a Facebook group just hoping that someone randomly gives me the right answer. I think I should really pay for the service or maybe, you know, sort of like, Whenever you're moving, you want to call your friend with a truck. So the idea is, is make sure you always have a friend with a truck. <laughs> well, make sure as a clinician, you always have a friend who's an ethics expert. And I'm not talking about just an ethics professor, because I'm just going to anecdotally say that about half of ethics instructors are not actual ethics experts. They might be good at teaching ethics, but they're not real experts. And believe me, <laughs> I know a fair share of professors who teach ethics who have not only no idea what they're talking about when it comes to like complex ethical issues and legal issues, or they might even have erroneous ideas that they spout in public. I knew a professor that taught ethics 
that talked about things. I don't even want to get into it, but the things he would say to people and people would be like, well, you know, they're in, they're in ethics professor so they know what they're talking about i'm like oh my goodness they they that professor has no why they're telling everyone the wrong things and because there's just no checks and balances on that like if you're an ethics professor who who checks off on your material and there's a lot of hours in a class that a professor can say a lot of random things and no one knows any better because all the students just don't know and so that's another problem let's go on to another question All right, these next questions are from Orla. Orla says, um, how is the COVID situation over there in the United States? Is anything open? Are you in a third wave? Well, the way I'll answer this is that ever since the lockdown happened in March, I believe, I've just been avoiding the whole thing. Some people, when things open up, they're like, yay, now we can go to restaurants if they're 50% capacity. So, you know, Seattle's been through a lot of different phases like this. And I've just, you know, hunkered down through the whole thing because I have heard about some, not only obviously death that can happen to me and people that I'm connected to, but also just long-term effects. You know, you're asking how's the situation in the United States. You know, we're talking about a vast, vast area of land and regions. Uh, one way to, th- if you're not from the United States, one of the ways to think about the United States is that we're actually 50 individual states. Each state has its own government. We have our own governor. We have our own Supreme Court. We have our own representatives that meet in the state capitol. And a lot of the things that happen regarding uh, public health, such as when a pandemic happens, is on a state level or even on a city municipal level. And so anything you're hearing in the news about the United States regarding the virus is just general uh, news that's happening maybe on average or in the hot spots or something. Washington State, we in Seattle, we had the very first cases of the virus confirmed. And so in, in the beginning, we were the hot spot. Because we have an effective government and we have, a, we have an effective public health system and an effective culture to deal with this sort of thing, we have some of the lowest rates of infection and some of the lowest rates of death because we were able, as a community in Seattle and in Washington State, to do what needed to be done. So that's very different than when you're thinking about another area in the United States where maybe they're so rural they never had to shut down or another area where it was really difficult for them to do it. You know, like in Manhattan and in New York City, it's really hard to not have, even though if you're doing everything right. So it's really variable across the United States. So it's really hard to characterize how we're doing in the U.S. The U.S. numbers itself don't look good, but if you look in my area, it actually is a lot better and a lot more encouraging. You also ask, Orla, how do I feel about the current political climate? I feel hopeful. Let's go on to another question. Patron Nini asks, from Discord, I believe, how how does one deal with people presumably having obsessive compulsive personality disorder in a work environment, especially if it's your boss. So what if your boss had obsessive compulsive personality disorder? Well, there's a lot of variance because just knowing that someone suffers from obsessive compulsive personality disorder doesn't say much about how they are as a person or their behavior. It'd be like saying, you know, I have a boss that has borderline, you know, what's that going to be like? It's like, it doesn't really tell you much really at all. And there's a lot of other dimensions to a personality. You could have obsessive compulsive personality disorder and be a very nice person. You could also be a very mean person, depending on other developments in your personality or things going on in your life. 
And so having someone with obsessive compulsive personality disorder as a boss is a hard thing to generalize, but I, but the risk would be if their personality disorder were to be directed at you as an employee or a, or a, um, you know, someone underneath them, it, it could feel like a, a very strange version of perfectionism that is being imposed on you. And you might have a really hard time deciphering why they're so particular about certain things even people that are on their level might look at them and say like, yeah, I don't know why he's so particular about his reports having those kinds of elements, you know, like the, the quality of the paper or something, you know, if if you actually have paper reports, that would, I guess is kind of telling you my age, but, but anyway, obsessive compulsive personality disorder from the outside could feel for some just an oppressive, bizarre form of perfectionism that would bother you. Uh, maybe. Uh, but, you know, it's it, a, a, a lot of personality disorder uh, experience is happening within and also if you're really close to that person. You know, for example, with borderline, it wouldn't be uncommon for someone suffering from borderline to come across at work as if everything was fine. But then the person with borderline goes home and then that's when, you know, the stuff hits the fan. All right, I thought I would get to a lot more questions before the break, but I didn't. So let's take a break, and when we get back, I'll continue. All right, we're back from the break. I don't know if I've announced this on the audio podcast, but I'm on Cameo now. Cameo is a thing where you go and you sign up with me, and then I will send a happy birthday message to someone or a congratulations message to someone, video message. And if you want to do that, go to Cameo. <laughs> I, find, I find that it's hilarious that I'm on there. And, but I also find it really nice to be able to give back to the listeners in, in, in this way. It's actually uh, feels really gratifying to actually like con- wish someone happy birthday or congratulations or something. Anyway, Ken asks, I believe from Discord, I'm a PhD student in musicology, and I am currently taking a seminar on the history of music listening. The History of Music Listening. I'm curious to know if there is a connection or similarity between the history of listening and psychotherapy and the history of listening to music. Well, I don't know. Uh, the, the history of listening and psychotherapy is pretty complex, and, and I, don't, I don't know the theory of listening to music, but it does actually provoke some interesting questions in my mind. As a music lover myself and as a musician myself, I find that when I listen to music, I can listen in a variety of different ways. There's a mode that I listen to music where it's just kind of there, it's kind of in the background, and I might be enjoying it, but it's I'm not really focusing on it. Maybe I'm focusing on driving, or I'm focusing on a conversation, or I'm daydreaming or something. But the music is there, and I hear it, and it's registering kind of, but I'm not really, I'm not really concentrating on it. On another level, when I listen to music, I might be just loving the song, and that's all that I'm focusing on. I might even be closing my eyes. It reminds me of this uh, time in my life when I had this friend, his name was Stan, and him and I loved music so much, and we loved, we had a lot of overlap in our music with regards to the Smashing Pumpkins and Soundgarden, and he really loved um, Rage Against the Machine, and I was a fan, I guess. But, but so this is you know early nineties, like ninety three or something, 
And he had this super loud stereo system and we would sit in his room in the dark drinking like old English or something. (laughs) And we would just, we would just listen to entire albums in the dark. And it there was something about listening with him, with each other that it was, you know, it's a spiritual experience really. And actually when I think about that, I'm even brought back to when I was, 10 or nine years old, nine years old, I would have been with my neighbor, Tommy. He loved music and he had ACDC and the Beatles and Rush and uh, moving pictures. If you're familiar with Rush and um, Back in Black or Hell's Bells by ACDC, those albums, uh, Magical Mystery Tour he had. And we would also sit in the dark and listen at the age of nine. Imagine that I'm nine years old and we're listening to ACDC and I guess Journey Escape, that album would have been in there too. And um, Rush Moving Pictures. I mean, Rush Moving Pictures is such an amazing album. And and, uh, so we would just sit there in the dark and listen. And so that's a different kind of way of listening, right? Where you're just really just, that's all you're doing. It's like a sensory deprivation except for the music. Another version of listening is where you participate, where you might dance or tap your foot or something. Another way of listening is where you're, you're really analyzing the song. And this is actually mainly the way I listen to music. This, as a musician, uh, and I'm not, you know, musician is one way of look, thinking about me. Another way to think about me is I'm a, like a songwriter producer because I'm, I'm an okay mu- musician in terms of playing music, but really... I think where my skills lie is in the ability to like songwrite and produce music and, you know, like to make the whole thing happen and to make everything work together. And I mean, I'm not particularly good at it, but it's, I think what I do often, what I like to do. And so when I listen to music, I'm often breaking it down and thinking, oh, okay, there's the bass, you know, it's the tone of the bass. Okay. The, the hi-hat has that kind of quality to it. Okay. I can hear the compression on the kick drum the vocals have a delay on it. You know, I'm 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 just going through everything, kind of as like um, I, I want to. I'm sort of I'm often cataloging things as a music listener, thinking, oh, that's a, actually a good combo. That that keyboard timbre with that bass is actually that style. Like I haven't heard that before, and, and that overall atmospheric reverb that they have, like that's really cool. I think maybe I should do something like that in the future. So I'm doing a lot of that, or I'm kind of breaking it down like, huh, that's an odd signature. It's, I think that's a seven eight or something. What's happening right there? Oh, there's a blue note in there. So uh, I'm often doing that, or or literally what I'm doing is I wrote a song with that exact same uh, you know chord progression, that, and I'm sure my wife gets annoyed with me. You know, I'll just say like, okay, you know, we'll be at a restaurant. This is this has probably happened a hundred times, and like no joke. We'll be at a restaurant and. I'll be like, oh, you hear that song? And she'll be like, what song? And you know what? It's really loud in a restaurant and you can just barely hear music. Like I can hear the entire song. Like I can hear it piercing through all of the din. And my wife will be like, I can't hear that song. I can barely hear it. And I didn't, I didn't even notice that radio was on or songs were on. I'm like, oh, I've been, I've been listening to this song this entire time as we've been talking. You know, I've had one ear kind of paying attention to, to this song. And I'll say something like, do you hear that chord progression? I love that. I wrote, you know, I wrote a song with that chord progression. <laughs> and she'll be like, okay, anyway. And 
it's something that I do when I listen to music. I'm, I'm like, oh, you know, that's actually like a major to the minor fourth to actually the, the major seventh and, you know, a major, major seventh and then also the minor fourth from that, you know. And I'm going, oh, you know, it's kind of like Lay Lady Lay from Bob Dylan. And I wrote a song like that once and thought I invented that chord progression, but in fact, I hadn't really, you know. I'm, I'm doing that kind of stuff all the time when I'm listening to music. And uh, so... <laughs> this is all to say that in psychotherapy, there's a lot of different ways to listen to. There's a way of listening where I'm listening to a client and I'm just kind of hanging on every word and I'm, it's sort of a yes and experience where I'm not really thinking much. I'm, I'm just in the moment really trying to soak it in and it's sort of the words and the experiences that they're telling me are sort of washing over me. And I, this is sort of like the experience of sitting in the dark, just listening to music, right? I'm just like in the moment, it's just happening. And I'm not, I'm not really thinking about anything. Another mode of listening is, okay, what's happening right now? What do they need? What are they, what are they really trying to tell me? What do I need to tell them? How does this fit into their overall treatment? Uh, what's my countertransference? And this is more of that other mode where I'm like, oh, that's a chord progression I used to work on. You know, it's it's more of I'm listening and I'm enjoying it, but I'm also analyzing it and and conceptualizing it. Um, and then another mode of listening that I'm guessing I fall into at times. I, I don't do this much anymore. I would say I did this more in the beginning of my career when I had like 40 clients a week, 40 hours of clients a week, you know, where... I might be kind of distracted and I'm not really listening. You know, and that was like that first way of listening to music, which would be like, yeah, I, you know, I, I hear the words, but I'm not really tracking and I'm, I'm kind of distracted and uh, I might, I might miss a verse or a bridge every now and then and, and try to pick up where I left off. So I don't know if that answers your question, Ken, but that's the way I'm answering it. Okay, the next email is from patron Katie Poo. She writes, I have a five-year-old son. His dad and I have been divorced for four years. We all get along really well. But lately, my son has been having a really hard time transitioning from one home to the other, which we do twice per week. Both my ex and I are feeling burnt out about it. Do you have any suggestions to help my kiddo and keep us sane as parents? End of question. Yeah, and this is common. It's not something that people like to Instagram about, but it's really common for a child to uh, struggle with these kinds of transitions, even older, older kids, 13-year-olds. One way to think about it is that each time your son moves from one ho house to the other, he's losing his entire world each time. He's losing the parent. He's also losing the house and the bedroom and the toys, everything is becoming uprooted. And for us adults, we usually do this pretty well. When we go on vacation or something like that, we, we're okay. We're okay leaving our house. We're okay leaving our loved ones behind. We're okay leaving our normal bed and our toys, if you will. For children, they're so myopic that that's their entire life. And when they have to give that up, even temporarily, that's really hard. Plus, five-year-olds have trouble with time, as you know. And it's hard for them to know, okay, 
I, I know they keep telling me that in half a week I'll be back in this house, but that's a lifetime from now. So all those things contribute to a child having a really hard time. Now, of course, in our modern society, we're just like, well, you know, that's just how divorce works, right? You, you move out and you have the kid, you know, you have split custody and the kid will spend half the week in one house, half the week in the other house. And a lot of times it, it goes relatively well, but in a, in a way it might be really hard or a lot to expect for a five-year-old to be able to deal with that without having some kind of problem. It doesn't mean you don't do it, but it's normal is what I'm saying. Um, so tips that I have off the top of my head are maybe having more overlap, maybe like the toys, they go with them. Uh, maybe a lot of objects go with them. Maybe the parents go, you know, like when you drop him off at, at your ex-husband's house, maybe you stay there for a few hours and, and you do that every time. The other thing is maybe figure out if he's afraid of something. Maybe there's something that he's afraid of. Maybe he's afraid of losing you or, you know, I don't know, but there, there could be something that you need to help him with on some level. Maybe some time together as parents. Maybe if he sees the two of you together uh, being friendly, and maybe you do this anyway, it maybe it helps him to say, okay, we're a family. I'm not going from one family to a second family. We're all one big family. We just have two homes, that kind of thing. Transitional objects, um, stuffed animals that he is really attached to. I'm guessing that you already do that. You might have phone or video contact when the child's at the other home. Maybe more one-on-one you know, time directly after, like when he arrives in your house, you, you just know, okay, I got to spend a few hours just having concentrated one-on-one play with him because that'll help him make the transition more, more smoothly. The other thing is child therapy or family therapy. You know, there might be something systemically that's going on here that is hard for you to figure out. There might be some reason as to why he's having this anxiety or having this reaction that isn't readily apparent in the way that you interact. So, you know, that's what I'd recommend. But then you ask also, you know, how do we cope? Because we're, you know, it's driving us insane. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I, I've been with a lot of parents in your situation. And this, again, is not, not something that people Instagram about, meaning that parents like you are usually quite ashamed of themselves or at least not enthusiastic about sharing what they're going through. And so there's a lot of parents going through similar things like what you're going through. And that isolation causes problems. And so talk about it. Parenting is hard. You know, if, if you don't have someone to talk to about your ongoing parenting woes every day, then you're going to suffer. Parenting is, you know, they say it takes a village and it really does. But part of that village is for you. Part of that village is like when you put the kid down for bedtime and you just had a day with that kid and you just vent and cry into someone's arm for an hour while you, you know, they listen to you just rant and rave about how your five-year-old son is driving you crazy. We need that. We need that. And it would be nice if they were there in the moment as well that you're reaching your limit and you're like, I can't do this right now. And someone else steps in. We have this expectation in today's society that 
and for t- particularly for mothers, that they should be able to parent on their own. They should be able to do all the parenting tasks by themselves. That is not functional, my friends. <laughs> and this you have extremely easy kids, which some families are blessed with. That is just not a recipe for success. You need aunts and uncles and hopefully spouses, grandparents, your siblings, people there who can be like, let me take little Johnny off your hands. We'll go play in the backyard and you can just, you know, go sit on the toilet for 15 minutes, you know, (laughs) and not have to worry about the child falling down the stairs because you're not, you don't have eyes on. And we need to stop organizing our lives in that uh, you know, sexist assumption that women are just supposed to be able to do it on by themselves. And then we have kids and, and parents who have, who suffer under these circumstances. And we're just like, you know, how do I cope? How do I deal with this? And it's just like, well, we, we are, or our, our uh, family culture is oriented wrong and it's getting worse, you know? So I don't know what the solution to that in the short term, but, you know, just think about this. This is something that if you're thinking about having kids, it's something to think about for sure. For example, a common thing that uh, uh, young parents will think about or emerging parents will think about is like, where are we going to live? You should be thinking, you know, a lot of people think, oh, we want good, we want good schools. No, what you should be thinking about is good support. Family support is usually good because and you could have good friends, obviously, if, but pe- essentially people who will babysit your kids for free, no questions asked, often. <laughs> like, you need to have people five, 15 minutes away who will babysit your kids, no questions asked, often and well, and love it. They, they Not only will they babysit your kids, but they love babysitting your kids, and they want to have an ongoing relationship with your kids. Well, what do we call these individuals? Well, we call them family members. We call them your parents or your siblings or your best friends or whomever, you know, whoever it is. And you need that for a lot of reasons. Um, so uh, make that a priority if you're not, you know. In, in our society, we don't emphasize this enough. So many people are mobile and just you know, f- moving to far-flung places and having kids, and then they struggle in isolation, and then their marriage falls apart, and they're now they're parenting completely by themselves, and they're wondering why things are going bad for them. Well, it's because we've never lived like that before. It's not natural. We've literally never lived that way before industrialization and modernization. There was never a chance in our human history where we raised kids alone, unless our entire tribe was wiped out by a pandemic or something. For the 99.9999999% of our species history, we raised children as a tribe. The, the entire village raised that child, watched that child, loved that child. And you, as the biological parent, had a total freedom to just walk away from parenting every now and then because you just knew that there were five other, five other people that could take over right then and wanted to take over anyway. So, you know, you, you'll, you'll thank me if, if you prioritize that. <laughs> and, and many of you are, which I, I know is good. Anyway, let's go on. All right, this next question might be a little triggering for some people. So if you've suffered from childhood sexual abuse, you might want to skip forward about 10 minutes. Up to your patron, Tomcat, on Discord, he asks, how and why 
is childhood sexual abuse so damaging? So, you know, how and why is childhood sexual abuse so damaging? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question because we all know it is harmful. But why? Like, how does it exactly happen? Well, there's a lot of different lessons that a child learns through the process. And not every child learns all these lessons, and there's a lot of different experiences of childhood sexual abuse. And some people have experienced what we would call childhood sexual abuse, and there isn't any overt damage that happens, no, no symptoms later on. It's a sad moment. They don't look back on it fondly, but they don't have any symptoms personality-wise or defenses or barriers or schemas or anything. So it's not universal. But commonly what will happen to people, and again, it depends on the experience, but a, a lot of lessons that can happen, if we're talking about sort of quintessential childhood sexual abuse where you have a loved one or a trusted person who is coercing the younger person into having sex or doing sexual acts, uh, this will teach a lesson to a child that it is okay to exploit other people sexually because they know that they don't have as much power as the person that's doing it to them. And so there's this uh, lesson learned of like, well, it's that's okay. The children, they don't just learn what's socially right and wrong. What they learn is how, you know, they learn by watching. In the same way that they learn their native language by listening to people talk, they, you know, is, I guess the analogy would be like, okay, if English literature textbooks are saying you're supposed to talk this way, but your parents talk another way, you don't learn the the quote-unquote academic way of teach of, of speaking the language. You learn the way your parents speak the language. Well, in the same way, we don't learn as children the moral law of society. What we learn is the moral law we're being taught. And if you're taught a moral law that says that it's okay to exploit powerless people when you want to, you know, when you feel powerless, it's okay to overpower other people in tremendous you know, pervasive ways, then that's the lesson you learn. And it becomes part of your neurology. It becomes part of your assumptions. And no matter how much you try to tell an adult, no, it's not okay for someone to do that to you. And it's not okay when you do it to other people, because a lot of people who are victimized will go on to victimize other people in various ways, not necessarily in sexual ways, but maybe in emotional ways. And so they learn that lesson that and, and we all have that gauge. Say, you know, for me, I wasn't abused as a child. And so I might have, shall we say, a, a, a sort of mainstream understanding of morality in that way. And so when I see people being exploited, I react physically in my soul. It hurts. Well, for people who have been sexually abused, they, they might not feel that way. They might watch people being abused or harmed. And they don't react the way that other people would because they're like, well, isn't that what everyone does? That's normal. Isn't that normal? It feels normal. And so to, so to a lot of uh, sexual abuse survivors, a lot of their therapy involves them reworking that moral compass because people will, will try to uh, abuse them again. Uh, and that's actually one of the things that they do is, you know, tragically, they, they're often attracted to other abusive people for various ways, various reasons. And 
they will think, well, yeah, I mean, this person's abusing me. You know, my my wife is abusing me right now, but but it, that's not, you know, everyone gets abused sometimes or everyone abuses people sometimes. And as an outsider, you're like, no, they don't. <laughs> that's just what life has taught you. And the way you're being treated is unfair. The way you were treated as a child was unfair. And the way you're being treated now is unfair. And for some people, they will never really get the sense like that's that it's really unfair. That they have to be told that and then they have to remember, oh, that's right. What I'm seeing right now or the way I'm being treated right now, that is technically unfair. Even though I don't feel like I deserve to push back. I don't feel like I have the right to push back on this behavior. And... Obviously, that's pretty damaging uh, schema, right? <laughs> the, the notion that not only do you not deserve the integrity of your body and of your emotional well-being, but also that other people don't either. You know, like I said, people will sometimes grow up and as a way of acting out their powerlessness, they'll overpower other people and abuse others. And so this this notion of exploitation and power uh, can be damaging in a variety of ways, going in several different directions, right? Another notion that is taught to children is that they don't really matter, that their feelings don't really matter, their bodies don't really matter. And this is another thing that we just learn. And if, if you're raised well enough, you emerge into adulthood with what we might call like a mainstream understanding of what my rights are and and what my value is, what what my worth is to to the world and to other people. And if you were taught something different, that as a young person, you didn't really amount to much. You were someone's object or plaything, or you're you're just a piece of meat. And your value is only as good as someone can use you for, you know, your, your only value is how much someone can um, get their gratifications met through you. You don't have any inherent worth independent of how you satisfy other people's strange urges. And so this is another very terrible lesson that people who go through abuse will will feel. And as an adult, again, there's a lot of therapy that goes into correct, having corrective experiences around that, but they, they never really quite shake the idea that they're not really worth anything. You know, because the the neurons oriented themselves in such a way when they were young that that schema, it, it's pretty stubborn. Now, you can overcome that quite a bit, and you can really have a lot of corrective experiences around that. But, but that notion is still there, and the self-esteem vulnerability will probably always be there, at least in part. And so the damage as an adult is that when your self-esteem is threatened, when, you know, you just have a normal day and you you feel like an imposter or you feel like you're just not good enough or you feel ashamed. You know, we all go, we all go through this. The other thing I'll say is that a lot of people who go through abuse will experience what we call post-traumatic growth in that through the abuse and their adaptability and their resilience and their journey and their wisdom, they emerge on the other side stronger than anyone else ever could be because they know what it's like to be uh, in the you know in those situations, and they know what it's how they they've overcome these issues themselves through therapy, through reaching out, through self compassion, through taking care of others. They've overcome these things and emerge on the other side 
as someone stronger and wiser than anyone else on the planet. So it's not as if abuse means you're automatically at a disadvantage. It doesn't mean that at all. So I just want to say that. All right, actually, this question is kind of related to that. Patron Tin, maybe on Discord, said, I, ha- I have a mother who is very sensitive and possibly borderline. I had a mother who was, I have a mother who was very, who is very sensitive and possibly borderline. She gave me a distorted point of view on the amount of pain my actions might cause others. For example, when I feel like I'm bothering someone, I'm used to thinking that I have ruined their entire day and hurt them emotionally. I feel like this consistent self-judgment has caused me to develop extremely poor self-esteem and a weak sense of self. I essentially learned to believe that anything that benefits me comes as at a disastrous cost to someone else. What do you think would be some effective ways of learning the actual extent of the pain that I cause? Okay, so that's interesting. What Patronton is saying is that as they were growing up, their mother was very reactive to them, and when they when the child tin asserted themselves, the mother would fall apart, and then the child learned tin learned that when I'm assertive, when I'm even just kind of inconvenient someone inconveniencing someone with my own needs, then uh, it results in just huge amounts of pain and upsetness in other people, and this has had uh, an effect on my self-esteem being low and my weak sense of self. And now Tin's asking, you know, what do you think would be, you know, how do I learn the actual extent of the pain that I cause? Because when I, my internal gauge is that I cause everyone tremendous amount of pain when I assert my needs at all. But I'm getting the feeling like maybe that lesson isn't really true and that my mom only taught me that and the rest of the world actually doesn't see the world that way. So, Tim, I'm glad that you're emerging out of that abuse. I don't know if it's abusive, but at least that situation. And uh, you're at, you know, you're at this, the beginning of a wonderful journey in life. And the process is, and this relates to what I was saying before about the, you know, the effects of sexual or any kind of abuse when you're growing up, is through corrective experiences with intense attachments. So, let me just kind of walk through the the steps here you you establish a secure attachment with with someone that is long term now of course a therapist would be a good candidate for this but it could be really anybody um, with a therapist it's the most safe and sure especially if you're going to a attachment oriented therapist but the idea goes is that through that secure attachment you actually explore a lot of things like as a client you might say uh, at some point as a client you're like yeah the other day you know I kind of asserted my needs to my therapist and I I kind of felt like my therapist was a little upset at me and I don't know and and you you go to the next session and you bring it up and you say you know so last session when I asserted myself I kind of felt like you the therapist felt like it wasn't fair for me to assert myself and then the therapist says oh thank you for bringing that up no, I actually was really happy that you asserted yourself. One, you deserve to be heard. Two, I want to know what's on your mind. Three, it gave me a chance to do right by you. And four, I know that this is important for you to be able to see that you matter. So you rinse and repeat that enough times and you learn, oh, wait, 
I do matter and other people don't freak out when I assert myself. You learn that through experience. It's one thing to learn it intellectually and say like, hmm, my mom was different than other people and I shouldn't use her as a template for every human. Okay, that's good. That's a good starting point. But imagine if you actually experienced it over and over and over again and you just learn essentially through practice that it's okay to assert yourself and you don't have to cringe and fear and you don't have to put yourself down as a precursor to that that experience. You know, it's akin to, you know, imagine that you're going to be a, an Olympic ski jumper, you know, that really big ski jump thing. Well, you don't just jump off, you know, if, if any of us non-Olympic ski jumpers think about that, about that action, we would be like, oh my goodness, there's no way. It's terrifying. There's no way I could do that. <laughs> there's no way I could get on those skis, no poles, and just, you know, I'd kill myself, literally. Well, okay, yeah, that's the goal. That's what we want to get to, but there's all these little steps in the way, right? First, you start with, you know, tiny little jumps, and then you get a little bit bigger jumps, and then you have people that coach you, and people that, you know, you look at your videotape of how you did it right, and what you did wrong, and you look at your technique, and then, you know, fast forward 25 years, and now you're going off that jump. Well, it's the same with emotional things and personality things as well. It's one thing to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to assert myself and I'm going to force myself to believe that I matter. Well, that's like just trying to jump off the jump without any kind of practice. You need to go through the steps. You need to have a coach, you know, a therapist, you know, not a, co- a coach in the skiing and a therapist in the emotional sense. And, and you just, you practice, you take baby steps, you just little by little. And then before long, Boom, you're, you're launching off of that jump and it feels good and you're not afraid and you feel that it's right. It is okay for me to assert myself. I matter in the world. I deserve to have people take care of me. I deserve to be heard. I deserve people to not hurt me. And when people hurt me, it's not okay. Okay, well, we don't get there overnight. We have to do a lot of iterative steps towards that. All right, this last question is from Ella Ella Maria says, in terms of abuse, something I struggle with is having no one to blame. I don't know why placing blame on someone is important to me, but doing so uh, would make me feel complete, but I don't have anyone to blame for my trauma. Growing up, I was physically abused by my brother, and my mother wasn't very present. This was all due to my mother being a single mom and doing shift work while raising three kids. My older brothers had to care for me when they were too young to really have been given that responsibility, so I don't really blame them. My brother, has been, my brother hasn't been abusive for many years, and I love my mother dearly. She did what she could, but I was still traumatized as, as a result of her decisions. Why do I, I, I... And I find myself longing for someone to blame, but I don't have anyone to blame. Why do I feel this? Well, Ella Maria, I don't know. I obviously don't know you and... I would talk with a therapist about all this, but it's not uncommon for someone having gone through abuse to have a tremendous amount of anger. And if I were in your situations, situation, I'd be, I'd be pretty angry. In fact, I'm angry for you. The fact that, you know, who are we angry at, right? And, and I'm, I'm, in your, I'm in your shoes here, Ella Maria, because I guess, so is it your mom's fault? Well, she did what she could. Is it your brother's fault? Well, they were too young to be in that position anyway. So whose fault is it? Well, 
it's okay to be angry and it's also okay to blame people at the same time of loving someone. This is actually something that I, I have to talk with a lot of my trainees about because a big part of becoming a therapist is reckoning with your childhood and a part of reckoning with your childhood is realizing where your parents went wrong and where they, and where they went right, but also where they went wrong. And some trainees of mine will really love their parents and that's great. And they have a really hard time being disloyal and thinking, yeah, but my parents, you know, they had some, they had some problems. They had some flaws and I'm damaged because of it. Well, that's universal. Uh, the thing that I always tell people is the best you can do as a parent is only damage your child enough so that the child only needs five years of therapy. There's no chance that, you're, that you can raise a kid without damaging them such that they need five years of therapy to recover from your parenting. There's just no way. The best parents, there, there's, no th- there's no thing as perfect parenting. And plus, there's just constant opportunities for conflict between children and parents that just cannot be resolved in which uh, such that the child walks away going, yay, I got my way. You know, children want all the cookies. They want to stay up late. They want to overpower their siblings. They want all the things in the store. They want your constant attention, particularly at certain ages. And that's just not possible. And so they're it's and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to be in a bad mood and you're going to work too much you know and there's there's just always going to be problems anyway so uh, it's normal as a as an adult even if you love your parents and you see your parents as having done everything they could have done to make things right for you you can still look at that and say like but you know they did that one thing so often and it really hurt me you know you could look at your mother and say, you know, I know she was under a lot of pressure, and I know she had to do shift work while raising three kids, but I don't care. She wasn't there for me, and that hurt me. She shouldn't have put my older brothers in charge. I don't know what else she could have done, but it, it, it's a shitty situation that I had to go through. And I don't, and my older brothers, okay, they were young. They were too young to take care of me, but I don't care. They shouldn't have treated me that way. It's unfair. Okay. It's okay to say that. You can have both. A lot of people think of, well, if I get angry at my family, that means I hate them, or that means that I can never be close to them. That That's not true in my book. In my book, you can be angry. You can even vocalize that anger to people, but at the same time, you can still be absolutely, you know, Uh, in a loving relationship with those people. The other thing I'll say, Ella Maria, is that it's possible that what you're looking for is something really appropriate to blame. Well, if you want to blame something, it's possible that society is the problem. It's possible that the fact that your mother didn't have any help or that, uh, you know, there wasn't any kind of social systems in place or, you know, something went wrong in society or culture or economics that led to your mom having to work too much, that led to her having to, you know, put the older brothers in charge, with, which led to neglect and abuse of you. So there might actually be something legitimately blamable, but it's outside the family. It's, it's, not, it's not your family's fault. There's a lot of situations like this where you look at a situation where the government won't raise the minimum wage 
And what happens? Well, you have a lot of parents who have, you know, three kids and there's a divorce and the single parent has to work 45, 50 hours a week to barely pay the rent. How is that fair? How is that fair? When you have people rolling in billions of dollars at the high end and you you have people just completely unable to pay their bills from a... A, a regular job. How is that fair? Well, that's a that's a system. We we have a a you know a group of people who make decisions to make that happen. That's not a natural state of affair. We have laws and regulations to support that inequity. We have politicians and lobbyists who work real hard to justify that by telling us that that's the fair way to do things when everyone knows that is not fair. Even the rich people know that's not fair. It's not fair that people have to work all day long with barely being able to pay the bills and everyone's suffering in poverty and the kids are being neglected because the parents, you know, the parents can't just not work. So what do people do? Well, kids suffer, right? And it's clear that if we changed our society in pretty simple ways, honestly, that we could really change that situation. But guess who doesn't want that to happen? People with all the power and the money. They don't want that to happen. And they convince everyone that it's anti-American or it'll ruin the economy and it's just not supported by science. In Seattle, actually, we're extremely progressive here, and we've been routinely raising the minimum wage, probably not high enough, honestly. And there's always this big, I'm not just talking about minimum wage, I'm talking about all sorts of things, you know, uh, services, public health, this kind of thing. Anyway, you know, transportation, childcare, the whole nine yards. And there's, there's a lot of things that are happening, but not enough. And there's always this huge debate you know, we, we actually made, in Seattle, we made minimum wage $15 an hour years ago. It might even be higher now, but, and there was this huge debate. It was, oh, it's going to ruin the economy. Well, guess what happened? The economy thrived after we raised the minimum wage uh, to, in, in Seattle proper, to a lot higher than what people thought was possible. The economy is doing fantastic. Now, I'm sure some people bring up some, but anyway, my point is, is that, Ellen Maria, if you want to yell at some. There might be a very viable target in society. And I don't know what society you live in, but there's probably at least something there. And uh, your entire family can can band together in yelling at that system. Um, so that's just my communist soapbox moment. All right, everyone. I answered your questions that Colin compiled for me. Very good questions. I really like these. These are very interesting questions. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it and uh, rise up against the, um, the man because we all deserve it. We really, really do. 